Hi everyone, I'm Panicky in the UK and this is Panicky Pictures. <coughs> it has been a little while since my last episode came out. Um, essentially, for those of you who are deeply invested in my schedule, um, my resolution to try and diversify and avoid US media for a month kind of scuppered my plans for November and I did have another episode planned uh, for the 6th a few days ago, but unfortunately those plans fell through because I could no longer source the film, so here we are. And today I am going to be talking about the new David Fincher film, Mank. Um, I usually avoid talking about films that I didn't enjoy. Uh, spoilers, I wasn't crazy about this one as anybody who follows me on Twitter, which is very few people, will already know. Um, but I just felt like, you know, the discourse was raging, I have waded into those waters, so uh, it's been living rent-free in my head for the better part of a week. Might as well get it out there, see if I can kind of exercise it from my brain. Uh, so, alright, let's talk Mank. Um, First of all, as far as David Fincher goes, I am kind of on the fence. Um, I really like some of his movies, um, notably Fight Club, I really like. I am um, sort of a Fight Club defender. Um, I like Zodiac a fair amount too. There are others. Um, Seven I saw when I was far too young, or at least saw part of it. Uh, the um, I think it's the gluttony. Oh no, it's the sloth scene with the tongue and everything. Uh, that genuinely deeply traumatised me. Uh, I saw it way too young, it was very upsetting, uh, still don't really like to think about it, uh, so that's not really a favourite of mine, but I guess you could argue that it did what it intended to do, uh, i.e. massively disturbed me. Um, when it comes to some of his other stuff, I mean, Gone Girl, The Social Network, don't massively work for me. Uh, I know I'm, you know, in a minority there, but uh, it is what it is. Um, probably my favourite David Fincher project, or maybe on a par with Fight Club, um, would have to be Mindhunter. Um, I absolutely loved Mindhunter, and it kind of, I felt like it kind of filled the hole that Hannibal had left. Uh, even though they're quite different shows tonally um, and visually, uh, still, you know, there was enough kind of thematic uh, crossover that I just felt like it um, kind of became a replacement of Hannibal for me, and I was a big fan of Hannibal. Uh, I'm a big fan of Brian Fuller in general. Um, and I was really disappointed when Fincher announced that he probably wasn't going to be making any more Mindhunter, um, and I really hope he changes his mind. Um, and maybe, you know, I was a little bit biased against Mank from the start, partly because I felt like it had taken Fincher away from Mindhunter, and partly because when I first saw the trailer I just thought it looked really ugly and not very interesting. So let's talk about the cinematography first of all. Um, I will say that based on, as I said, the trailer and some of the promotional material, I thought it was going to look incredibly ugly. Watching the film, I thought it was just kind of ugly. It really wasn't as ugly as I thought it was going to be. Having said that, I do think that it's poorly lit and that that well, I don't want to be um, prescriptive about it because obviously he has his aesthetic, but David Fincher tends to shoot in very low contrast. That's kind of what he goes for. I don't personally think that that translates well to black and white. 
And I think that if you compare the film to Citizen Kane, which is kind of inevitable, um, we'll be talking about that in a bit. Um, when you watch Citizen Kane and you see what Wells is doing with light and shadow and how he is using them to create meaning, I do not think that Fincher has replicated that in Mank. Maybe that's not what he's trying to do, but I just find that the low co contrast and the weird lighting for me just doesn't work at all. But again, looked better than I thought it was going to based on the trailer and um, some of the shots that I saw prior to watching the movie. Um, some people have said that the issue is that it's shot on digital and that digital is not a good medium for black and white. Personally, I really disagree with that. I don't think that's the issue. Um, I think that uh, black and white shot on digital can look great. And I would point to um, Pavel Pavlikovsky's Cold War as an example of that, which I think is completely beautiful. So I don't think that digital is the issue. I think that it's the contrast and the lighting, uh, for me at least, that makes Mank uh, not look as good as it could. Moving on to, I guess, the story and the script. So, um, as I think everybody is aware, uh, well, you might not be aware, uh, there's no shame in not being aware, but um, this script was by Finch's father. And I do wonder if maybe that is part of the problem that uh, Fincher wasn't able to get enough emotional distance from the script to figure out why it wasn't working and to make changes that maybe would have made the film hang together a little bit better, uh, which I think is the major problem with Mank, really, um, is the fact that it kind of feels like three different movies. So let's talk about it structurally. The first hour or so, I have to say, I found really unbelievably dull. And honestly, thinking back to the film, I can barely remember what happens in that first hour. You kind of have the setup of Mank being installed at this ranch where he's supposed to write Kane, um, and Wells has sent these kind of drugged uh, bottles of booze for him, um, and you're kind of introduced to the quote-unquote present-day characters, and then you have these flashbacks, um, I guess the most prominent of which is when he meets Marion Davies, who is the wife of William Randolph Hearst. And this scene, honestly, I just felt um, was just egregiously bad. I mean, Mank is supposed to be, um, you know, incredibly witty. He's this great writer. And he's, he's coming out with lines like, um, what's at stake here? When he sees Marion Davies tied to a stake uh, while filming one of her movies. And... Uh, that was a lucky break uh, when reminiscing about fracturing somebody's wrist. Um, I mean, I just thought those were awful lines. And honestly, there are quite a few bad lines. I think um, Lily Collins's character in particular um, has some really dodgy dialogue. Uh, notably, you're right, of course, aircraft carriers are a shitty idea. Um, Honestly, I think that her character feels really superfluous to the film, and I do wonder what really the function of that character is in the narrative. I kind of speculated that maybe she was supposed to be some kind of audience insert, where at first she's a little bit sceptical of Mank, and then she gradually warms to him, and she's kind of informed of his heroic deeds um, in relocating German refugees, very much told and not shown. 
that didn't work for me. I don't really understand what the point of her character is. I found her whole subplot with her missing husband um, just felt very tacked on and boring to me. Uh, not great. I would have been more interested maybe in exploring a little bit more the relationship between Mank and his wife, played by Tuppence Middleton. I feel like that isn't delved into as much as it should or could be. Um, I also feel that for all of the praise that Amanda Seyfried has got for her portrayal of Marion Davis, um, she should probably be in the film more than she is, and you could probably say the same for Charles Dance um, as William Randolph Hearst. Um, really feels very peripheral to the film, even though in some ways the film is very much about the relationship between Hearst and Mank, and Davies and Mank. So I feel like there were certain things in the film that felt extraneous, and there were other things that felt like they should have been delved into quite a lot more, um, in my opinion. Uh, so yeah, so the first hour, and then you get a flashback to 1930, and we have the 62-year-old Gary Oldman, who is portraying Mank roughly from the ages of about 31, 32, uh, to the age of about 42. And, I mean, Gary Oldman is a very talented actor, usually, and very attractive man, but he is 62, and he does not look 30. I mean, even if you factor in, you know, the fact people generally are a little bit better preserved these days than they used to be, and, you know, Mike had alcohol dependency, which can be very ageing, I still think that it's a little bit preposterous to ask us to believe that um, the 62-year-old Gary Oldman can pull off playing the, you know, the version of Mank that's in his early 30s. And also in this flashback to 1930, we get references not only to Frankenstein, but also to The Wolfman, which came out in 1941, um, as was pointed out by somebody on Twitter. And there are some people who are kind of saying, who cares? It doesn't matter. Why does it matter? I mean... I guess if it doesn't matter to you, that's fine, but a lot of people are calling this a love letter to Hollywood, which I think is anyway a flawed reading of the film, which we'll get to in a little bit when I kind of talk about what you might loosely describe as act two. But I think, you know, if you're going to describe this as a love letter to Hollywood, then you can't also say it doesn't matter that these people are ha sitting around having a conversation about a film that wouldn't come out for another 11 years. Um, Frankenstein um, also came out the year after this conversation is supposed to be happening, which is not as bad, but still not great, um, you know, in a film that is supposed to be very cine-literate and all about Hollywood. So, you know, so that's pretty much what I remember from the first hour or so of the film. And then it culminates in the scene where uh, Mank is at a party uh, at the Hearst residence, uh, Louis B. Meyer is there, and they're all sitting around talking about the war and the Germans and the Nazis and essentially Mank is the only person in the room who really understands what's going on and he's right about everything it's almost as though it's almost as though he's being written by somebody who already knows what's going to happen and wants to make this central character seem very intelligent by having them you know have this kind of clairvoyance and frankly I think that's bad writing um, and I think what's notable is that if you look at Citizen Kane, which again, you know, um, is a flawed protagonist whom we follow over a number of years, notably, Kane says that there isn't going to be a war in Europe, and, uh, you know, they have his word on that, and it's 
this great bit of dramatic irony, which is completely lacking from Mank. And I'll maybe get to how a very generous reading of this film could go uh, in a little while, but I have to say, while I was watching it, um, my feeling was just that this was bad writing. And then we get a stretch of about 45 minutes where I actually started to be interested. Uh, It's all about Upton Sinclair's bid for office and how it was completely scuppered by Kane. Sorry, not by Kane, by Hearst. Um, But you can see where where I went wrong there. And um, sort of indirectly by Davies as well, unknowingly, but due to her vanity. And this is all kind of... Uh, seen as, I guess, justification for um, the the way that Mank wrote, certainly about Hearst and maybe to a lesser extent about Davies. I actually found this stuff really interesting. You've got Bill Nye in there as Upton Sinclair, which is uh, very interesting. Um, and, you know, it's all about Hollywood as a propaganda machine, kind of shoring up the right and... Um, you know, peddling these false narratives. Uh, And it's kind of fascinating, and suddenly I'm interested. And, you know, there are still problems with the film that I've already mentioned, but I actually feel like something is happening, and I also feel like, you know, Mank here is uh, maybe flawed in a slightly more interesting way than he has been in previous scenes. So I was really starting to get excited uh, that the film really felt like it was picking up and it was starting to go somewhere. It goes on like this for a stretch. There's a particularly good scene, I think, on election night in a nightclub where the film starts to feel a bit more visually innovative and kind of a little bit more filtered through the subjectivity of Mank himself. There's a really nice shot of, uh, or a pair of shots of this ice sculpture of an elephant, which kind of mirrors... Um, a shot in Citizen Kane, although not very closely. And then there's this scene where Mank, and this has been in the promotional material, I think it's referenced on the poster, Mank shows up at the Hearst residence while they're having this circus-attired dinner party. He's very drunk, and he gives this big, long, rambling, on-the-nose speech, This is where I started to feel my interest waning again. Um, I have to say, I mean, Gary Oldman has a history of alcohol dependency himself. And knowing that, it's kind of astonishing, I think, how broad and kind of bad his impression of a drunk person is here. Um, And, you know, arguably, yeah, it's heightened, you know, maybe that's the style, but... I just found it quite alienating and uh, not very believable and again far too on the nose and then in the last 10 or 15 minutes the film suddenly takes another pivot into yet a third storyline well we have a resolution of the Lily Collins storyline which I never cared about anyway but mainly the last 10 or 15 minutes seem to be about Um, this credit dispute between uh, Mank and Wells. The idea being, and this has been thoroughly debunked, that Mank himself entirely wrote the script and Wells wanted to take credit, which, by the way, was the contract that they both signed right at the start. And, you know, Mank fought to have his name on it, blah, blah, blah. Um, And that, you know, Wells didn't really write the thing. Uh, It's just not true. It's just not true. And 
you know, again, um, maybe this doesn't matter to you, but in a film which is about, or at least partially about, Hollywood uh, propagating false narratives, the fact that it is so factually inaccurate um, in a couple of key ways just strikes me as being quite ironic and all right here we go maybe you can defend the film by saying that it is from the point of view of Mank that it is what Mank's narrative about his life and about his work would be I think you can make that argument I don't think it fixes some of the structural issues and I think also Fincher hasn't really done enough to create that effect um, for that reading really to ring true for me. Um, so I think even in the most generous reading it doesn't quite come off, if that was even the intention. Um, so I rewatched Kane um, after watching Mank, and it really struck me how many of the problems in Mank could have been fixed if it had actually adhered to the Kane structure, um, which, uh, as you probably know, is essentially a kind of detective story about the last words of this Hearst figure, where this uh, this reporter just goes around interviewing people who knew him, trying to get to the bottom of what his last words meant. He never finds out what they meant. We, the audience, do. Um, but in the process, he kind of gets the trajectory um, of this man's life um, and his corruption, essentially. And it would have been so easy for Mank to mirror that structure. Maybe too easy, maybe you might say that's on the nose, but it at least would have fixed the structural issues at work in Mank. And there are all these scenes in Mank, or a couple of scenes, where Houseman comes in, and Houseman here portrayed kind of as a little bit of a caricature, I think, of an Englishman. Doesn't really feel like a real person. Again, you know, if you have the subjective reading of Mank, then maybe that's fine, but um, it bothered me. And Houseman comes in initially, and he says, I say, old boy, uh, you know, you're really asking a lot of the audience here, jumping about so much, and Mank goes, oh, they'll get it, they'll get it. And then, you know, Houseman comes back and he says, well, I was wrong, it's a work of genius, old boy. And, you know, you're kind of thinking, okay, so this is the film offering up an apologia for itself in a way, because it's jumping about so much, and it's kind of trying to sell that as being respectful of the audience's intelligence. But uh, I just don't think that Mank is as structurally sound as Kane is, so I don't think that's an apologia that actually works. Um, so there we go. Uh, some of my uh, story and structure problems with Mank there, as well as with some of the factual inaccuracies going on and how I feel that that kind of negates the spirit of what it's trying to say, at least in its middle portion with the uh, Upton Sinclair storyline. Now, I did see an argument that this was, this film could be read as Mank, who is somebody who for many years of his life is careless with words and who finally writes something of real meaning and wants to put his name to it. I think that's an interesting reading, and I think it's there. I do think it's there, but I think it is buried under so much superfluous stuff and bad writing that um, 
I don't think that it emerges clearly as the message of the film. Um, and I think if that is indeed what Fincher or the Finchers were going for, um, it needed more polishing, it needed more refinement. This script to me feels like a second or a third draft. Um, it feels like something that has yet to be knocked into shape. Um, and just a little bit more of a word on casting, I would say, um, you know, as I said, Gary Oldman I think is far too old for this role. I think that um, Tom Burke also um, is, well, he's far too old really to be playing Wells at the age of about 24. Um, Tom Burke is 38. Um, now, again, a very generous reading of the film that you could make is that it's playing with what Kane did, which is to have the very young Orson Welles play Kane um, from, you know, the ages of early 20s um all the way up into his dotage but i think that what kane did albeit arguably in quite a kind of theatrical way is it did really distinguish between kane at those different ages and you know the other um characters as well you know the joe cotton character the george Coloris character and the dorothy Cummingall character susan as well uh, Dorothy Cummingall, by the way, and I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly, and I uh, apologise uh, if I'm not, um, really fascinating, um, and I think that, you know, if anybody uh, in Citizen Kane deserves a biopic, it, it's her. Um, she was essentially blacklisted um, after she refused to uh, testify in front of the House and American Activities Committee, but according to Bogdanovich, she also kind of... Um, did her career in because she simply refused to take any roles that didn't interest her. Um, so she seems like a great character and, um, you know, maybe that should be the biopic rather than Mank. Anyway, all of these actors, albeit, you know, maybe in sort of heavy makeup, although actually I think the aging makeup in Kane is really good, especially for the time that it was made. Um, you know, they really do depict that physical change in the characters over time. And it's not just the makeup, it's the physicality too, it's in the performance. And I don't think Oldman is doing that at all. And again, I have been a big fan of Oldman in the past, you know. Um, I think he can be a really fantastic screen presence. Here, I just think he's miscast. Uh, Amanda Seyfried, I mentioned, I think she's good, but she's getting a whole lot of praise, and I can only feel that it's from people who didn't really rate her before, whereas I always thought she was good, so it's not like a big revelation to me. I think Lily Collins is kind of saddled um, with a bit of a rubbish part and some really difficult lines. Um, again, Tom Burke, I think, is a little bit too old. And I think the other trouble with the Tom Burke performance, and I don't think that this is his fault, but I just feel that Fincher didn't want Mank to be overshadowed by Wells, which I think would have been very easy uh, for that to happen. That's bad grammar, but you know what I mean. And so kind of wanted Wells to come across as very boring, which he does in this film. And you know, if there's one thing that Wells wasn't, it's boring. He always had a twinkle in his eye. He was an incredibly intelligent, articulate, 
passionate, innovative, energetic person. You know, he he was a presence, and in this film, he feels like an absence. Um, and there have been, I think, some bad faith takes, which have characterised this film's detractors as being people who cannot bear for Wells to be criticised because he's untouchable. And I just think that that's a complete straw man argument. I mean, Wells was arrogant, you know, sometimes he was self-sabotaging. He wasn't always a very nice guy. But the problem with this film is that it's just telling lies. It's telling lies about him. Whereas, um, a film that I also rewatched uh, is the Richard Linklater film Me and Orson Welles. Um, it's no masterpiece, it's not Citizen Kane, however, it's a really fun film that I think does capture Welles in a really truthful and authentic way, even though the story of Me and Orson Welles is not literally true, it is authentic. And again, Christian McKay in that film is way too old to be playing Wells. I think Wells in that film is supposed to be 22, something like that, or even maybe a little bit younger. Uh, McKay again is in his mid-30s, he's way too old, but what he does capture is this incredible liveliness that Wells had, even though that film does portray Wells as incredibly arrogant and incredibly self-serving, uh, narcissistic, a control freak, all of that is true, but it also portrays him as he was, as somebody who's very humorous, who was very charismatic, and who was a real genius. Um, I would recommend that um, you listen to the Kermode on Film episode on Citizen Kane, uh, which lays a lot of this stuff out, and I think a really good point that was made in that podcast, which is a conversation between Mark Kermode and uh, Jack King, is that Citizen Kane could have existed without Mank. It could not have existed without Wells. Wells's fingerprints are all over it on every level, you know? And the thing about Wells was he came from a theatre and radio background. He had no idea what he was doing in film. And he was helping to set the lights up because he didn't know that that wasn't his job. He was involved in absolutely every aspect of the production and sometimes completely messing it up because he didn't know what he was doing, but at the same time, inventing incredibly innovative shots. You know, one of the things that's so great about Citizen Kane is the cinematography, and that is largely to do with Wells bringing this enthusiasm and this naivety to the medium. He didn't know that there were received wisdoms about what could and couldn't be done, so he invented new techniques. And when you go back and look at Kane, you are seeing things being done for the first time. That is not Mank, that is Wells, you know, and the whole crew, and the production team, but largely, it is Wells. You know, and you don't have to think that Wells was a nice guy, but I think that you have to acknowledge that he was a singular talent. And you probably should acknowledge that he co-wrote Citizen Kane because he did, and the evidence is there. I don't want to belabor this point, but it's simply the truth. Alright, <laughs> but uh, let's not get too bogged down in all of that. Because now it is time for a one-off segment that I like to call who wore it 
wellsest. Does that work? Is that anything? Uh, anyway, um, Orson Welles has been portrayed on screen uh, several times, and I am going to be ranking uh, performances of Orson Welles by other actors. I've already mentioned a couple of them, um, but uh, there are a few more that haven't come up yet, so let's talk about it. Um, first of all, let's start at the bottom of the list and work up. Um, at number five, I am going to put uh, Tom Burke um, as Orson Welles in Mank. And the reason that this is number five it's not really, again, because I think that Burke is doing anything wrong. It's simply that I think that the film itself doesn't capture the essence of what Wells was like. And I also feel that Burke is a little bit too old to be playing Wells uh, at the age of 24. Um, even though, you know, there is some physical resemblance and I'm sure that Burke is a very talented actor in other projects, I just don't think that he captured Wells at all. Um, and again, I think that that has a lot more to do with the script and the direction than it does with the performance. Nevertheless, number five, Tom Burke as Orson Wells in Mank. Alright, number four, this was a difficult one. Uh, yeah, I kind of went back and forth on this one, but at number four, I am going to say Jack Clef in The Eyes of Orson Welles, even though I think that it's actually a really good performance. Um, but it does come at the end of the film, and it is just a voiceover. Um, I think he does a really good job, but, um... I, I just feel that because it's fairly minor and because it's a voiceover role, although uh, this is going to come back to bite me when we get to number one, but anyway, um, I feel like he just makes less of an impression than some of the other actors who have uh, played Orson Welles. Um, so, uh, Jack Clef, Eyes of Orson Welles, the Mark Cousins film, which I highly recommend you watch and I think really provides an incredibly interesting perspective on Wells and you know some of his passions that went beyond the cinema including you know his incredible social justice work as well as his uh, painting and drawing um, and uh, yeah just a fantastic film if you are interested in Wells if you're David Fincher then you're probably not gonna want to watch it but whatever uh, so, alright, number four, Jack Clef. Number three, I'm gonna go with Christian Mackay in Me and Orson Wells. I think he's great, however, a little bit too old, um, but really does capture, I think, the Wells sparkle, um, and the kind of complexity, the mercurial nature of, uh, the man who ran the Mercury Theatre, um, so Christian McKay, me and Orson Welles, Richard Linklater, uh, I would recommend you give it a watch, it's not a great movie, but it's a really fun movie, and I do think that it captures something about Welles, uh, it's worth watching. Alright, on to number two, and, uh, this one is just a little cameo, and in fact I have not seen this film, but I have seen the clip. Um, I wish I could have seen this film um, before talking about it, but I haven't had a chance, and also it's a film that stars Johnny Depp, and honestly I'm not really in the mood for that right now. 
But the film is Edward, uh, directed by Tim Burton, and Vincent D'Onofrio plays the role of Orson Welles in a key uh, but minor uh, bar scene. Uh, I believe that Vincent D'Onofrio's voice is being dubbed over by somebody else. I could not find who was doing that dubbing, or if in fact it was just ADR of D'Onofrio himself coming back to dub over his previous performance. let me know if you know who it is um but i just think it's uh it's just a kind of witty and fun and light little scene and also i just think let's give edward props for looking beautiful shot in black and white looks great it can be done folks all right uh and on to number one uh oh you're gonna hate me for this uh so, my number one performance uh, of Orson Welles is Maurice LaMarche as the brain, as Orson Welles in Animaniacs. And I know what you're thinking, why? Well, I'll tell you. Um, I saw this when I was a kid, it really stuck with me, it was probably one of the kind of first things, I, I may have seen Citizen Kane at this point and maybe started getting into Orson Welles, but... You know, I didn't have a lot of associations with Wells at this point when I first saw this thing. And it just really stuck with me. It really tickled me. I think it's very funny. I think it's an incredibly funny thing to put in a kid's cartoon. I know Animaniacs was always doing stuff like this. But to put a spoof of an Orson Wells TV spot uh, in a, a kid's animated show... that would have gone over the heads of, let's say, probably 95% of the audience, maybe a little bit less than that if you have parents watching with their kids, but, you know, um, I just think that that is absolutely hilarious. I think Maris Lamarche does a great job, and of course, uh, also a voice actor on Futurama, which is a great show, as we all know. Speaking of uh, animation and things going over your head when you're a kid, and... um, Futurama, Matt Groening, The Simpsons, I got there. So, The Simpsons. Um, again, this is something that Jack King brought up but uh, in the um, Kermod on Film episode about Citizen Kane, but I thought I would just mention it too because um, it's certainly true of me that um, I grew up watching The Simpsons long before I ever saw Citizen Kane, and I think even though there is a line in The Simpsons episode this is the cane from Citizen Kane. Somebody else says, hey, there was no cane in Citizen Kane. I think on some subliminal level, I always kind of thought there was a cane in Citizen Kane anyway. And whenever I, whenever I think about Citizen Kane, even now, having seen it more than once, uh, there's like a little superimposed image of that cane uh, over the top of uh, my memories of it. And, uh, of course, plenty of other Kane references in The Simpsons, including the very famous Mr. Burns Bobo episode and various others. I think that there was a period where the writer's room was just big into Citizen Kane, uh, which is great, and I applaud them for it. Um, All right, uh, I'm pretty much going to wrap things up now. And um, I hope that those of you who enjoyed Mank and have listened this far for some reason um, don't hate me too much you know there's always room for healthy differences of opinion um a lot of people are on your side a lot of people think it's a masterpiece i don't know why but they think so um but you know that's my take what are you gonna do 
Um, I am going to be uh, putting up my write-ups of uh, Citizen Kane, Mac, and Me and Orson Wells on Letterboxd. They will probably be up by the time this podcast is released or shortly thereafter. If you're interested in uh, reading those, uh, you got the gist of them already, but I don't know, you might want to go back and have a look. I don't know, I don't know your life. Um, As always, that is Panicky in the UK on Letterboxd, and if you would like to follow me on Twitter, where I have been ranting about Mank for nearly a week, and it's getting very tedious for everybody, including me, I'm going to stop now. Um, it is Panicky Pictures, and again, the links, as always, will be in the description. Uh, thank you so much for joining me again, if indeed you have, and, um, I hope to see you next time. I'm not yet sure what my next episode is gonna be. I'm maybe gonna do a Christmas episode, but I'm not making any promises right now, because, oh boy, I'm working at a COVID testing centre, and it's, uh, really tiring me out, so we'll see what happens. Uh, alright, thanks again, and, uh, I will see you, well, I won't see you, but maybe you'll hear me again at some point in the future, maybe next year. Alright, thanks for joining.